Hello and welcome to YHTV's Trinity of Life. This is episode 27. I'm Christina Suzuma, your host for this program. Thank you so much for joining me again as I continue to explore the wonderful world of healing arts, meditation, therapies, and the many modalities of helping us find balance in our individual journeys. We are also excited to meet those of you who are on the leading edge of creating change on this planet. Today, we are honored to have with us a faculty of our virtual world yoga and meditation conference, the wonderful, wonderful Bhavani Lorraine Nelson on the subject of the power of meditation and chant. Hello, Bhavani. Hello, hello. Good to see you. Wonderful to be with you. Oh, yes. Thank you so much for honoring us today. I, this is the first time that our audience and those who have participated even in the virtual conference are actually seeing you live. So we're very excited. Ah, yes. Oh, yes. Very good. All right. So, Bhavani, you are an expert. I mean, to even hear your voice at this moment, it is it is like so soothing to the spirit. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your history and how you became an expert in this area? Well, frankly, I, I do not consider myself an expert, really. But I am certainly a practitioner, and I love this area. I actually feel I started my journey in the spiritual realm really early in my life. And I was in different churches because I sang. And so I had an opportunity to see different ministers and church people talking and about their belief and this and that. And somehow to me, even at an early age, there was something about that that I thought, you know, they are talking about it, but it doesn't seem that they are experiencing the depth of it or the, the, the real experience of it. And that's what I wanted. So I set about to see what I could find out about that spiritual experience. And actually, when I was a freshman in college, I read a book that had a yogic way of viewing the universe. And it made so much sense to me. So that became really my my belief, even though I didn't explore it all the time or, or be actively participating in it all the time. But as I moved along, I got different pieces. And when I was teaching mathematics on television for the state of Maryland, I went to Johns Hopkins University for mathematics courses. And at the university, there was a group doing meditation. So I thought, wonderful, this is terrific. I'll find out more about it. So I went. Well, what they were doing actually was a light meditation, they called it. And it was pretty much a guided meditation. So kind of a, a guided journey. And so I was into that sort of meditation. And I began leading that meditation as well. Later, I left the job at the television station. And I went to Arizona, actually New Mexico, to meditate in the mountains. I had just recently become aware of Ram Das. He was at that time doing the WBAI lectures in New York City. And so I took with me recordings of Ram Das, recordings of another teacher from England, Douglas Baker, and a little folk music and chanting, chanting both in Sanskrit and Gregorian chanting. So in that six months that I was meditating in the mountains, I really didn't listen to the radio or things like that. I simply was immersing myself in these lectures and with good information about meditation, about the path and the chanting. So that's kind of where I got into chanting. And then I, as I moved along, it, it's an interesting path. It's kind of a checkered journey because it was not linear in the sense of a, 
a straight line, like a, you know, projectile into a good understanding and experience of the spiritual realm, I kind of did stair steps. So I would go into kind of a retreat space and be with myself, experience what I experienced. And then I would go out and share and teach and do different things in the world. And then I would again kind of retreat and, and, you know, move into a, a still space and explore again. So I did various types of meditation and then I ended up in Tucson and met there a spiritual teacher from Canada whose name is Dr. Kenneth Mills, mm. fascinating fellow. He spoke in rhymed rhythmic poetry. He would be speaking along and all of a sudden it would be rhymed rhythmic poetry. It was wow. quite awesome. Yeah, amazing. And so he was really speaking from a non-dual place. People would ask him why he didn't acknowledge his teachers, but he had not really studied non-dualism in the yogic field area, but it simply was something that he came to and he talked a lot about you know, living out from the star instead of trying to work up toward it. So mm, that was a, a, you know, one part of my journey. I left there because like many teachers that I have noticed, he felt that it was his way or, or nothing. That his was the only legitimate path to whatever it was we were going toward. And to me, actually, I don't think there's anything but path in the world. The only thing is, are we on the way out or on, are we on the way back home? Mm. And so that was just hard for me to, to deal with. So I left there and then I discovered Kripalu and that was in 88. Went to Kripalu and it felt like home. So I thought, what do you do with a place that feels like home? You move in. So again, I was in a, a yogic path with the yogic philosophy, which includes, of course, both paths, working out from the star and up to the star. So my my sort of innate sense is non-dualism, but it all, to me, if you start from a premise, it all gets you to the same place. It's the same as I talk about in meditation. We have many techniques, but they're ladders to get you to the roof. And once you're on the roof, it doesn't make any difference which ladder you used. So the, everybody's going the same place. We're all going home. And it just depends on your personality and your, you know, what you're into, what you've been brought up with and all these things, which path you end up taking. So, but that got me again into chanting. And I started doing Sanskrit chanting. And of course, I have been doing that now. As I uh, said to you, I've been at Kripalu for about 24 years, going on 25. So now I've done a lot of chanting in my life. What can I say? And it's good stuff, good stuff. And of course, the meditation as well. So that's kind of a little taste of my journey. There were many uh, teachers along the way, both Buddhist teachers and yogic teachers and other people. So a lot of different inputs and it sort of got me where I am, wherever that is. <laughs> oh, wonder magnificent. So so you actually started out not in in these realms. You actually started out in a very linear realm of mathematics. Well, you know, frankly, I always sang. I sang from the time I was a little child. And that was really what I loved. But but then when I was in high school, Sputnik happened. And so everybody who had any kind of brain at all was told you got to study math and physics. And so I actually went to college and was going to major in math and, and physics education and go and teach because I've always taught as well. Whatever it is, I have taught. And then it didn't seem, I, I was like a martyr. Do you know what I mean? And I found that martyrdom is not a lot of fun. So I thought, I don't know that I can really do that. So I ended up changing my major to um, music. 
And of course, when I changed, they said, you have too many credits in mathematics. I said, what do you want me to do? Give them back? You know, I mean, this is silly. <laughs> I earned but, them. <laughs> uh, in any case, then I went into music. And then I actually changed colleges. I did a lot of uh, traveling. And I ended up leaving college for a time and folk singing. And then when I was, well, uh, it turned out that I ended up in Baltimore where my sister was uh, a therapist and they wanted to hire me at this place to do singing, folk singing, but they said, you know, it wouldn't be worth your while to simply come here to do that. We don't have that much work. You know, it's only once a month, maybe. Why don't you get a job here? And I thought, well, maybe I should work for the airlines so I get to travel. But that didn't happen in Baltimore. When you called the number, you got Virginia. So I thought, no, that won't work. And someone said to me, why don't you teach school? I said, I don't have a college degree. They said, no, no, this is Baltimore. So at <laughs> the time, <laughs> yes, at the time, Baltimore was so um, bereft, really. I mean, they had difficulty with finding teachers at the time. Mm -hmm. And they hired me knowing I was an itinerant folk singer. I had nine hours of college math, including three by exemption. And they put me with no college degree and they put me in a classroom. So I kind of uh, not only, you know, survived, but I flourished and I then had to get my degree. So I got it in English. So I had a degree in English, was teaching math and my real field is music. Mm. There you are. That's how the world goes. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it all worked together though. And I, frankly, I, I enjoyed teaching math and to me, mathematics and music are the same thing at a higher level. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you know, it, it does make sense, actually. Yes, absolutely. When In you, fact, especially... the whole thing with the Mozart effect, they say if you play Mozart for your child, they'll do well in mathematics because it kind of structures the brain. Hmm. So, uh, so it really, it's all, it's all together. Yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And all these different theories about music and I mean, sacred geometry and numbers, yes. and, you know, I mean, there's right. just so many That's different right. areas right. that, that it's sort of, you're you're touching it at a whole different angle. That's what it seems like. Yeah, and yeah, you brought yeah. it all together into this wonderful package now. Yeah. I used to do numerology actually as well. So I would give little numerological readings and whatever. So Yeah, I find that very fascinating, numerology. Right, right, yeah. Yeah. And you don't do that any longer? Well, I I kind of got away from it. I'm just doing different things, but I, I think there's great merit in it. And, and I think as well, there are many things that people use to sort of spark their intuitive ability. And so some people use numerology, some use astrology, some use tea leaves, some use a uh, pendulum. And so, but it's all sort of bringing forth that intuitive um, s skill in our lives. So. Um, Bhavani, you speak a lot about, you know, I mean, to me, you, you are an expert after all these years. You've brought in <laughs> so much, um, you know, so much experience into your areas of meditation, meditation and chanting. Um, and of course, you know, uh, for a lot of us who have not immersed ourselves in those areas, there's a lot of questions. You know, there's always questions and there's always different techniques. And one right. that I've heard you speak about is meditating on the breath. Yes. Can you speak and elaborate a little bit about that for us? Yes. To me, it's one of the simplest, in one way very stark, and one of the oldest techniques of meditation. Now, mind you, when we speak about meditation, it's interesting because there are many who say that we don't do meditation. Meditation is not something we do. It's something we fall into if we set the conditions right. And setting the conditions is learning to focus the mind. So most techniques of meditation begin with a concentration practice. And that's what meditation on the breath is. It is one of the concentration practices. So Others are meditating on a a candle flame, for example, yes. or doing mantra, doing loving kindness. All of those are concentration practices. When you use the breath, to me, one of the 
really simplest ways is to concentrate on the sensation of the breath. Mm. Some people think about the idea of the breath or visualize the breath going into the body and making its rounds and going out of the body and that kind mm. of thing. But I don't find that that is as um, dependable as the sensation. And I recommend three different places that one can use to experience that sensation. One is the belly, which if you're sitting tall, the breath is organically in the belly. It's where the universe breathes us. If you see a baby lying on his mm. back in the crib, the belly goes up and down, and that's where the breath is. If you're breathing in the chest, it means that you are doing it. And this meditation technique is not about doing anything. That would be a pranayama or the yogic breathing technique. Yes. This is about simply noticing how is the universe breathing you? So if you let the breath be simply natural and the belly goes up and down. Now, mind you, if you meditate for a long period of time, sometimes the breath gets more shallow. And it will get a little higher in the chest. And so all of a sudden you're thinking, well, where to go? Where to go? It's right here in the belly. Where to go? You know, and <laughs> that's why I don't know if the, if the belly is the, the best place. The other two places, one is the little area between the upper lip and the nostrils. So for a moment, simply breathe in and out and see if you can feel a sensation on that little patch of skin. It's very subtle. Some people don't feel it at all. In fact, I really never have felt it very much. Some people do. And if you do, it's a great place to watch because it is subtle and you have to really pay attention. But the area that I recommend, really the, the easiest place to notice is the nostrils themselves. Because when you breathe in, the air coming in is always a little cooler than the air going out. And no matter what time of year it is, air is always a little cooler going in, a little warmer going out. And so if you concentrate on that coolness and warmth and simply watch, and then, of course, whatever happens in the mind is what happens in the mind. And, and you don't have to worry about that, frankly. It's just what happens in the mind. Mm. Oh, very interesting. I, you know, Bhavani, I've never thought of that. Most of the times when I've been taught techniques or shared techniques, is always focus on the belly, focus on the belly, expanding right. and contracting, expanding. But when you said the upper lip, basically, I'm like, wow, wait a minute, I have to try this. That's why I was really still and silent yeah. for a moment. Hmm, yeah. That's a new awareness. And Can you, you feel it? it? Yes, yes. And you, then Dino you took it one stage Dino further, which yeah. is the nostrils. Yes, yes. That's a, yes. that's and, and to me, the nostrils are the most dependable. You can count on it no matter what time of year it is, what time of day it is, what time of what, no matter what. It's mm. always cooler coming in and warmer going out. And so if you concentrate there, it's a very dependable sensation. And again, sensation is a lot more dependable than thoughts mm -hmm. yes. or feelings. And so visualization, that kind of thing. There are certainly many, many meditation techniques that rely on visualization or other kinds of things. And they're all good. As I say, it's interesting. In fact, are you familiar with the uh, Myers-Briggs personality types? Oh, yes, There's yes, yes. Test? Yes. Mm. Well, there are a couple of books that have been written showing that different of the personality types on the Myers-Briggs naturally gravitate to different sorts of spiritual paths. Hmm, well, it makes perfect sense, doesn't it? I mean, we are not all the same. So some people really thrive under a very rigorous kind of Zen practice. And some people can't take that at all. And some people want something very simple or very, very mellow or, you know, whatever it is. And the joy of meditation to me is there's something for everybody. There's something for everybody. If one technique does not work for you, not to worry in the least Find a different book, a different teacher, a different place, and you'll get a different technique that'll work for you. Mm -hmm. Yes, I mean, uh, I do share that with a lot of people. It's like, especially when when we progress in our journeys and in our paths, as you might call it, it's like 
well, if this ladder doesn't work, try the next ladder. Exactly right. <laughs> As we're climbing exactly. through your roof. Um, yeah. And, yeah. and there are so many techniques. I mean, as, as I said, you know, we've been doing this a while now. And to hear that one simple awareness that you shared with us about the nostrils, about the upper uh -huh. lip is like, oh, that's interesting. Like, like there are so many. And, and I don't, I don't know through the years how many we can actually behold and, and experience, right? right. right? That's right. And it that's might right. be working for us at this point in time of our life. Yes, that's true too. And we might change in a month or, or six months or two years. You know, I find the practice, if we allow and not let our minds control our practice, but actually let our bodies naturally move in the path, you know, move right. with the flow. It's like the changes of seasons. Then we're able to actually experience all these other levels and paths to see what's right for us at this time. Yes, I think when someone begins a journey, or we're really always on the journey, do you know what I mean? As uh, Yogi Desai used to say, you're on the train, not to worry, you're on the train, it's going to enlightenment, there you are. But uh, when we start consciously exploring different things, I think it is very helpful to learn a few different techniques and have an experience of them so that you can choose something that you can really do. Because the best meditation technique for you is the one you do, mm -hmm. right? And so whichever one works, it doesn't matter which one. And then it is helpful to choose something and really commit to that for a period of time. Many, many teachers will talk about, you know, how important it is to one dig one well deeply rather than many wells shallowly. Yes. So you have to find something that works for you and then give it a, a, a good enough try. Do you know what I mean? Take it on for a time. Yes. But as you say, what you do in your 20s may be different from what you do in your 40s or 60s. Yes. And it is even true that the whole yogic path is set up for that, really. If you look at Patanjali, you start with ethic, um, ethical practices non-lying, non-stealing, you know, all those same things that we have. Everybody's got those rules in their system. The Buddhists have the five precepts. The Christians have the Ten Commandments. And in yoga, they have the yamas. But they're all the same. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. People have discovered if you're going to live in community, better you shouldn't kill each other. So, good you idea. know, that's a good <laughs> idea. Absolutely. So that's first. And the yogis are very, they're not moralistic. They're very practical about that. They figure if you have just stolen something, it's going to be very hard for you to sit down and meditate mm. because your mind is going to be agitated. Yes. So that's first. Then the practices, self-study, cultivating contentment, that kind of thing, the niyamas. Then the postures. And that, of course, makes the body more flexible, moves energy in the body, and then the breathing exercises, which to me, the pranayama is really one of the most powerful, powerful parts of yoga, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but then does start the business of meditation. And so when you're young, you're into the ethical practices, then you're into yoga, then you're, and as you move along, you really move into working with meditation and being in that arena. So it's a it's a good system. What can I say? Bhavani, do you believe, like uh, with meditation, um, that there are when when people say, "Well, I can't sit that long. I can't be still right. that long." How do you approach individuals like that? Well, first of all, if it's very tricky, then someone might try walking meditation, which is a bit more active. Or they might try one of the more active concentration practices like loving kindness, where rather than simply being with the breath, which as I say, it's a very stark situation. You are just there with your mind and that's it. <laughs> that's the scariest it, part. <laughs> that's right. That's right. It can be, you know, uh, Stephen Levine always said meditation is one insult after another. You know, <laughs> that's one. That's wonderful. It's amazing what our minds do to us. You know, the, the the teacher in Canada used to say, would you even go to dinner with someone who talks to you the way your mind does? <laughs> Think about it. That's not so good. Oh, but 
where were we? I, I kind of lost about that. About walking Let's meditation. See. We were talking about, um, oh, a different kind of meditation. Yes. Exactly. Sorry. So, um, the loving kindness, of course, has phrases. May I be safe. May I be happy. May I be healthy. May I live with ease. May you be safe. May you be healthy. May you be happy. May you live with ease. Mm-hmm. And to repeat those statements in a particular flow without, again, losing your place or, you know, so it's a, a distinct concentration practice, but it's a little more active for the brain. Mm-hmm. And so, it's helpful sometimes to have that kind of practice rather than simply the breath. So that's what I often recommend to people who have difficulty sitting. Hmm. That's uh, so, so let's just say, for example, a walking meditation. Yes. So they would be walking and they would focus on the walk. Yes. There are many kinds of walking meditation, depending on the tradition that you are in. But basically, your object of concentration in that case is the feet and the process of walking. Mm. So you begin to be very aware, again, of the sensation. Can you feel the feet when you are walking? What is the smallest increment of the feet can you f- that you can feel? Mm-hmm. So you simply slow everything down and... In many of the traditions, you you would sort of walk in a springtime pace first, but then you slow it down, and then you slow it down to a really slow pace. So in one way, it's almost like Tai Chi walking because mm-hmm. it's just very slow. And it is it is absolutely, for those of us who are into it, it's delicious. It's totally delicious because it brings all your awareness inside. Slow motion movement is fabulous to bring all the awareness inside. It takes you into an alpha state. Mm. So whether you use a a yoga posture or the walking, whatever it is, if you can really do it so slowly that you're barely moving, it takes all the awareness inside Mm -hmm. and just brings you into that meditative state so easily. In fact, on my CD, I, I do a slow motion uh, exercise to bring people in to the alpha state. Mm-hmm. And that's why I call the CD meditation made possible because for many who have not been able to meditate, they can because I get them into alpha before mm-hmm. I ask to be with their mind and be with their breath. Oh, wonderful. So much, much easier from the physical, from the physical yes. angle as opposed yes. to yes. the quieting the mind and quieting. That's right. And focusing right. on the breath. That's where people get restless, especially when they're used to very busy lives. That's right. And of course, people have, you know, sometimes unrealistic expectations. I think we're unfair to our minds. <laughs> you know, people are out in the world. They're active doing the business of the day. They come home, they sit on a cushion, and all of a sudden they expect instantly 180 degrees, mind should be quiet. Yeah. Well, excuse me, that's not very fair. So I always recommend some sort of cool down before sitting, whether it's slow motion movement or the alternate nostril Nadi Shodhana breathing or chanting, something that will bring you into a softer, slower brainwave state Mm. so that you can sit without being so agitated. Right, right. Interesting. That's such a wonderful point of view. Um, and your CD, thank you for mentioning that. Um, uh, you act, do you walk, do you walk, do you guide the individuals through the steps? Yes. Yes. I do a little bit of conversation first about meditation, mentioning some of the things that we have already talked about here. Mm-hmm. And then I guide them in using a slow motion experience so that they then just move very naturally and organically into an alpha state. Mm-hmm. And then I direct them where to direct their attention. And I mentioned the, the three places, as I have mentioned to you, the belly and the uh, little place below the nostrils and then the nostrils themselves. So, Bhavani, now meditation is... We hear that very often, and it is a very important part people make of daily living. 
But there is also another area that you do specialize in, and I have heard you, and that is chanting. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? It's good stuff. It's just good stuff. It's so fascinating because, you know, now they're, of course, researching all the yogic practices, and they find uh, all good things, you know, that... uh, uh, mantra is soothing to the nervous system, for example, things like that. Well, duh, you know. But uh, chanting is simply names of the of the divine. They're they're basically qualities that you want to bring into your experience, and so you are invoking these energies as you chant. And chanting is simply taking a mantra and giving it a fancier tune and some accompaniment of drums and the harmonium and that other instruments as well. But chanting the names of God is a very simple, simple spiritual practice. It's called bhakti yoga, the yoga of devotion. And it's very effective. Again, it will take you into another space. In fact, I had a friend in uh, near Kripalu who worked for General Electric as an engineer. He came to a kirtan, which is an evening of chanting, one night. And afterwards, he said, you know, I've never seen so many people so happy and so mellow without alcohol. Oh, lovely. It's great, isn't it? That's great. And frankly, you know, Ram Dass wrote the book, Drunk on the Divine. So (laughs) it, it does. You know, you don't need alcohol when you have chanting. But it simply feels good. I mean, in one way, it is a little bit interesting to me that here I am, Swedish-American. You know, my father came from Sweden when he was 24, and my mother's parents are from Sweden. And so what am I doing with Sanskrit chanting? Well, it just feels good. That's all. It just feels good. And in fact, many people who come to the Sanskrit chanting feel that Sanskrit kind of feels like their own primordial language. And I feel that too. It's a It's a very special language and powerful. So I highly recommend Sanskrit chanting, yes. You come from a background of music from a very early age, you know, singing and singing in in, uh, churches. Was that what you had mentioned? Yes. I actually started out studying opera and also did church singing. So choir singing. Right. Okay. Right. That's so, right. Now, and how I sang- do you, because that is also a form of, you know, when you're singing, you know, and worshiping at the same time. Um, right. And, and I'm from that background as well. And I remembered uh-huh. as a child how much I loved that. I, yes, I, I yes, wasn't always yes. big on the, the music, but I loved it. Um, how would you compare that to chanting and and basically singing the mantras? Well, when I teach mantra, there are those, Deepak Chopra, for example, Eknath Eswaran, who feel that in the West, we can use mantras in English. But frankly, what I find is that's a very tricky thing because a mantra in English brings the mind into play so that you think you know what it means. Even if you have a simple mantra, God is love. You think, oh God, oh yes, I know what, oh yes, God, mm-hmm, right, right, love, oh yeah, I know what. But in Sanskrit, you have no clue. And that's why it's all, it's frequency. It's the vibration that is so powerful. And so it affects us in a much different way a much deeper way, I think even a different part of the brain. Mm. So the Sanskrit chanting, simply letting it flow, uh, you know, as Shakespeare would say, trippingly off the tongue. Mm. And obviously you do want to pronounce it correctly because, you know, that's the fascinating thing about Sanskrit. It's all connected to the chakra system, the Mm. energy system of the body. And so when you pronounce Sanskrit, you are activating the petals of the chakras and bringing more spiritual energy into your system. So there's a lot more going on with mm-hmm. Sanskrit chanting. With hymns or choral music, it's, it's glorious. It's totally glorious. And there's no doubt that it uplifts the spirit. 
mm-hmm. and takes you to a, a place where you feel more connected to, to the divine in however you define that and whatever that experience is for you. But to me, there's something even more with Sanskrit chanting because the mind is not in it as much. In fact, the word mantra comes from manas, meaning mind, and tra to cross over. So when I first went to Kripalu, my background had been music and, of course, uh, a folk song, three minutes, you know, a hymn, whatever it was, an aria, maybe eight minutes max, Mm -hmm. and then it was done. We would chant a chant for 20 minutes, and I would think, we, why are we still doing this? We were just doing this for a long time. <laughs> and so, but then when I found out that the point was simply going out of the mind, you know, uh, it became a whole different thing. So chanting 20 years, we're going out of our minds, not a problem, <laughs> you know? And it's a good thing. It's a good thing. Oh, very, very interesting. Thank you so much for elaborating those points. Um, so, so if we're chanting in Sanskrit, because a lot of people have issues, of course, right. about religion. It's yes. like, oh, yes. but, but yoga has their deities and Sanskrit is chanting to a god or a goddess or and and so there's all these other levels, Bhavani, that people people fear. It's like, well, what am I right. saying? What am I really saying? What am I really chanting? Maybe it's something wrong, or maybe it's against my religion um, of, right. of what right. I believe in. Um, <clears throat> so the yes. whole level of chakra system, which most a lot of people don't understand what that is, the energetic systems right. of the body. Right, right. Well, in terms of the energies that we are invoking, often I will explain it this way, that, you know, it seems that the Hindus have a lot of gods because there are certainly a lot of different names. But in fact, the Hindus have one god and it's self. Now, the tricky part is we are each it. That's hard. That's right. So much easier to call someone else God. Do you know what I mean? You look in the mirror, you think you've got to be kidding. <laughs> so, but then, you know, why are there so many names? Well, to me, they are very resourceful people. And they figure, even as we have different aspects of our personality, I mean, you are slightly different with your child than you are with your boss, than you are with the mailman. So God being infinite must have an infinite number of aspects of the personality. So they name some of them to make them more accessible. And frankly, I don't think it's that different from the Christian system. Mm -hmm. You know, we have three in one, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three in one. Mm -hmm. And some traditions have Mary. So you can choose which aspect of the divine you feel most attuned to, to pray to. Mm -hmm. Some might pray to Jesus, some to Mary, some to the Holy Spirit. Well, in the Hindu system, they also have a trinity. And their trinity is the creator, the sustaining energy, and the transformer or destroyer. Now, how reasonable is that? You know everything in the world. It starts, it lasts for a time, and it changes to something else. The creator is Brahma. Not too many chants or temples to Brahma. There was an altercation in heaven. I don't remember the whole thing, but he was told you're not going to have. But frankly, I think it's just because it's such a huge energy. (laughs) If you try to grasp anything that could have created this, it's very hard. In fact, in the Jewish tradition, they don't even write out the name of God because it's such a huge energy. The sustaining energy is Vishnu. But we know that energy better as some of the incarnations of that sustaining energy. One is Ram. And Ram was an actual king who lived, who was thought to be so fair, so just, he was considered an incarnation of God. Then Krishna. And most people have heard of Krishna. And you know, he plays the flute. He's that magnetic aspect of the divine. And frankly, many people feel that the Krishna energy and the Christ energy are the same, all about love, Mm. all about love. And if you think about it, isn't love 
the sustaining energy of the universe. Mm -hmm. It's like the glue that holds everything together. Mm -hmm. Then there is the transformer, Maheshvara. But we know that energy as, better as, Shiva. Mm -hmm. Right? And Shiva, of course, is called the god of yoga because yoga is all about transformation. Mm-hmm. People think they're just stretching. <laughs> just wait. <laughs> so there's a lot more going on with yoga than just stretching, right? So those are the three basic aspects. Now, what are the other names? Well, first of all, every male name for God in the Hindu system has a female name. Isn't that lovely? Isn't that lovely? Oh, so, 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 so that's called the consort, but it's basically the feminine aspect of that same energy. Yes, you were going to. Interesting. Yes, yes. So Brahma has uh, Saraswati, the goddess of creativity, learning, all those things. If you're a a mother in India and your child is in school, you do mantra to Saraswati that they'll do well in school, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Then Vishnu's consort is Lakshmi, the goddess of abundance. Mm -hmm. So if you want prosperity, you do mantra to Lakshmi. And that, you see, is the beginning of how to view it as a technology. It is not simply the Hindu religion. It is a technology of understanding what qualities these energies represent and what you might like to invoke into your life. Ram, as I say, all about compassion. Krishna, all about love. Shiva, all about transformation. So you have to be careful when you chant to Shiva because, (laughs) hey, you may get what you want, you know, oh my God, there it goes. But, and of course, uh, Ram's consort is Sita. And Krishna's consort is Radha, the chief of the gopis or the devotees of Krishna. Then when you come to Shiva, oh, there are many consorts here because he's a big energy. So the, the, the major one perhaps is Shakti. And you've heard Shiva Shakti. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Then there's Parvati and Uma, sweet divine mothers. Parvati is the mother of Ganesha, the little um, fellow with the elephant head, the one who's easy to pick out in the crowd, right? There you are. <laughs> we know And him. of course, he's, yes, he's often pictured as a child, but you have to realize he's a powerful warrior because he's the son of Shiva. Mm. So, of course, he's always invoked when you start anything new in mm. India, right? A marriage or a business or whatever it is. You want to remove all the obstacles. So you invoke the energy of Ganesha. And then there's also the powerful divine mothers. There's uh, Kali, Durga, and actually Bhavadi is in that group as well. I'm I'm growing into it. What can I say? There we are. <laughs> but, uh, but those are the other names. And the other names, because of course you can go and find a CD of a thousand names of Shiva, oh a thousand names of Krishna. Those are attributes. They're descriptions. So for Krishna, for example, Murali is the one who killed the demon Mura. Govinda when Krishna was a young boy herding the cows. It just means cowboy. We just, you know, we thought we made the name up in our West, but no, no, it was in Sanskrit many centuries ago. So though all those names are descriptions of that particular energy. But then you see, when you want to do mantra or chanting, you have the joy of choosing, what would I like to bring into my life? And then you choose the chant that you want to do. Does that make sense? It does. It does. But it also brings me to the point where, you know, I was raised Catholic. Okay. So, yes. you know, we have what we call the, our saints. Exactly. And when, uh, for example, when there are certain um, things that we'd like to invoke, we would pray to that saint. Exactly. Yes? Exactly right. It, it and is, you can use this system in the same way. I see. I see. But instead of an actual individual because the saints are based on actual people that have lived in our history um right. in the hindu fashion is more towards an energy is, the, is that's what yes, i'm hearing also, right many of these deities so-called in the hindu system have taken incarnations mm. so for example vishnu the energy that is the sustaining energy of the universe. It's said that Vishnu incarnates 
whenever the earth is in need. Frankly, we could use him now, I feel, but oh, there yes. you are. <laughs> Maybe if, if we all come- continue to chant. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. So, and the fascinating part, there are 10 major incarnations of Vishnu. They mirror the evolution of life on earth for humans. The first is Matsya, which is the fish living in the ocean. And then there is, uh, the next one is a, a, a turtle, you know, both in the water and on land. And then they come on land and there are all these different incarnations. And then Narasimha is half lion, half man. So it's moving into man. Mm-hmm. And then there is uh, the ones we are most familiar with. Ram is the seventh incarnation. Krishna is the eighth. The ninth is very interesting. Some parts of the Hindu faith feel that the ninth incarnation of Vishnu is Brahma. Hmm. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. The Buddha. Oh, the oh. The Buddha. But you see, here in the West, we think there's a huge distinction between Buddhism and, and yoga or Hinduism. Mm-hmm. But really, the Hindus also take Buddha because Buddha was a yogi. Mm. And so really, it's all the same thing. Mm-hmm. It's all one one path, one thing. And the interesting thing is the 10th incarnation is yet to come. Which is interesting as well, because many uh, spiritual traditions around the world feel that there's somebody coming. Yes, yes, and, we hear that and over and over again. Kalki is the one coming on his white horse. So, you know, I say just bring it on. Come oh, on, yes. Kalki. Yes, so, so when we <laughs> chant or do mantra, yep. it is really invoking a certain energy into our That's bodies, cool. into our cellular being, basically. And right. just sort of our, freeing our mind yes. from all that. That's right. That's right. Because so there the is mind, no connection to actually religion, so to say. Well, you have to understand, if you are a Hindu, mm-hmm. oh. then chanting is part of your religion. I see. Okay. But if you are not a Hindu, chanting is a technology that can be utilized that is very effective to bring spiritual energy into our system. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's also, to me, a legitimate place to put your reverence yes. for whatever it is you call that mystery of being, which as a children, most of us had that feeling that there's a mystery here and I have great reverence for it. And then a lot of us are estranged from our birth religions. Mm-hmm. So we don't necessarily go to church or temple. Yes. And chanting is a way to express that reverence. And that's very helpful as well. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, frankly, to me, we, we all have that in some way or another. And some of us don't get to express it anyplace. So chanting is wonderful in yes. that way. Absolutely. Mm. Um, we have a question that came in, uh, Bhavani. Uh, you okay. mentioned an aria being eight minutes after uh-huh. a song or hymn being shorter and a chant yeah. being longer, like 20 minutes. What exactly right. is an aria? Oh, thank you so much. Well, an aria is an operatic song. So in uh, former days, let's say the classical period of music in the West, when someone wrote an an aria, and they wrote an opera, it contained various arias. So it's like a kirtan is an evening of chanting, and the chant is one piece. Mm-hmm. So an opera is an evening of operatic singing, a story that's told, and the aria is one piece in it, one song. Mm-hmm. That's a wonderful explanation. Um, and we also have a, a comment. Um, thank yep. you for explaining all of the names of the deities. I always find this fascinating and you made all the more, and you made them all the more accessible. That was very nice. I value that comment greatly because that is really my purpose. I, I think, you know, uh, in fact, my greatest joy is when sometimes someone from India 
who is Hindu, will come up to me and say, you made sense of it. One woman I remember said she had driven to Kripalu from Pennsylvania with two friends. And she said, you know, I spent the entire trip trying to explain Hinduism. And you just did it in a few sentences. So, <laughs> so I, you know, I, it is not, I mean, the, the Hinduism obviously is a huge and complex and beautiful religion. So this is not definitive in any way. Mm-hmm. But at least it does, I feel, give some clarity and it's helpful because it just makes chanting and mantra so much more accessible when you have a sense of, you know, otherwise, in some fact, sometimes when I'm chanting, I'll say, trust me, there are no subliminals. Do you know what I mean? There's nothing hidden in this. Yeah. You're simply invoking energies that you want to bring into your life and mm. into your system, your energetic system. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's yeah. very interesting for me, Bhavani. There was a comment that you made quite early on about um, about how... Uh, chanting or the mantras, um, how when they have been translated, how it doesn't quite hold a certain energetic feel. And what's interesting about what you say is, for myself, I have read the ones in English, and truly they have not resonated for me. Right. Yet when I hear the music that is in Sanskrit, there is some, I can feel because, you know, being a body worker, I'm a little more sensitive in certain ways. And right. music, right. um, I would always apply music. Yeah, exactly. So when I'm doing body work, depending on who I'm working with, I would apply a certain type of music in the room yes, yes, to yes, help fabulous. me enter the individual's yeah. aura or auric field to help them rebalance quicker. And so there are some compositions that are magnificent. And when I read some of the mantras, it, there was part of me that went, Oh, okay. You know, that, that's nice. The words are very Mm -hmm. beautiful, but it never compelled me to continue. Mm -hmm. Whereas when I hear the music in Sanskrit, I'm, it's like my whole body opens and lifts. That's right. And you just start That's repeating right. exactly those chants, right. you know, whether you yes, like it right. or not. And yeah. the, and children adapt to it very quickly. It's almost like they've known the words inside out and backwards. Totally. totally. Children love chanting. Well, rhythm is very comforting to our reptilian brain. And of course, mm. chanting is all about rhythm. Yes. And so children just love it. They just love it. But this whole business of translation, it's interesting. Frankly, it's pretty much the same thing with opera. If you hear an opera yes. in the language in which it was written, now mind you, the people in that country do have their minds come in because it's their language. But if you hear an opera in Italian oh. and you know, the uh, Visi d'Arte, which is uh, uh, someone who has just um, stabbed someone. You know, when you translate it, the English is, I stabbed him with the butter knife. <laughs> well, kind of loses in the translation. Right. You know, it's not as elegant as the Italian, that's for sure. Yes. But, and the Sanskrit is fascinating because... Thomas Ashley Ferran talks about that a lot. I recommend, by the way, if someone wants to pursue mantra, Thomas Ashley Ferrand, his, his website is sanskritmantra.com. And he talks about there's not really a literal translation, which is a little tricky for our left brain sometimes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because, you know, it's not as simple as la casa es blanca. You yeah. know, there's a lot more going on in Sanskrit than that. And... So you will find, for example, you can certainly make a translation. If you have, you know, Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya, I'm giving reverence to Lord Vasudev, which Mm -hmm. is another name for Krishna and for his father. But if you look up that mantra, if you Google it, for example, you will find many, many different translations. And, you know, things like it's the surrender mantra, really. So an English prayer might be, thy will be done, not mine. Mm. Or um, the Vasudev also means the indwelling spirit. 
So you might find a translation, may I have an experience of that indwelling spirit. Yes. May I manifest that spirit into the world, right? And may I become all that I'm meant to be, things like that. There are many, many ways to look at the translation. And that, to me, is one of the joys of mantra. Because you can have a room full of 100 people doing the exact same mantra. And it's a totally individual and personal practice because everybody will view the meaning slightly differently. Mm -hmm. And it's helpful whether you're chanting or doing mantra meditation to have an intention. Mm -hmm. Just as it's helpful in any spiritual practice to have an intention for that session of practice. Mm -hmm. So everybody's got their own intention. So it's a different thing for each person. Mm. Fabulous. Mm. Totally fabulous. Mm. Mm. Lovely. Lovely. Um, it's a powerful technology. That's the thing. Powerful that, that's, the words that you use, which is technology, that yeah. speaks to our linear brain. Yes, know, yes, 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 there, yes. Because then it doesn't speak to whether we're doing something right or wrong or acceptable yeah. or not yeah. acceptable. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. just a technology. Yeah, that's yeah. Wonderful. And yet Swami Kripalu always said, if you call God on the telephone of mantra, he can't help but answer. So in one way, it's a direct line up to the divine, and it's uh, helpful in that way too. Yes, right? Many ways to look at it, many ways. Um, we had a comment here saying, uh, very quality techniques um, are used for meditation. I like these techniques, even tried these techniques and found them of benefit. Uh, during my meditation experience, um, I felt in a, like I'm in a totally different world. Very, very effective. So that was a comment that came in. And another one is a question for you. I have All a very right. difficult good. time getting to quiet my mind to sit and meditate. Where can I get your meditation made easy CD? There you go. Yep. Meditation made possible. Well, frankly, it's on your website, yogahub.com, right? Yes, It's it on is. my website, bhavanilorainenelson.com, but it's also at iTunes and Amazon. So you just, it's meditation made possible. Mm -hmm. And if you Google that, you can get, probably Amazon has a the top ad <laughs> they usually do. <laughs> so, you know, and therefore it's downloadable in addition to uh, you can't download each track because that wouldn't make sense. In fact, I'll tell you a funny story. I have two blank tracks. So when you no longer need me to guide you into the meditation, you can uh, have a 12 or a 20-minute silent sit mm. with just a chai to bring you out so that you don't lose track of time. Right. Wonderful. But of course, on Amazon or on iTunes or CD Baby, they give you clips of all the tracks. And so you can sit there and listen to 30 <laughs> seconds of silence twice. <laughs> oh, no. It's, it's great. It's great. That's funny. Technology it's like, is Oh, <laughs> she's missing two tracks of music here. I can, I can see yep, how the linear mind right. is working. That's right. That's right. Uh, there is a question here. What is the yep. difference between mantra meditation and chanting? Well, as I said, mantra meditation is simply the repetition of a particular mantra. Oftentimes, there are tunes that go with the mantra. And Thomas Ashley Ferrand actually has CDs that go with his books so that you can get the tunes. The Om Namo, Om Namo, Bhagavate Vasudevaya. Mm -hmm. Lovely, cheerful tune. It's mm -hmm. great. But chanting takes a mantra and then has a fancier tune and adds instruments. So you have usually a harmonium, which is a portable organ, and uh, some drums, which builds the energy. And so usually meditative, the, the meditation of mantra, mantra meditation, is a meditative practice. It's slow. It's simple. The tune is very simple, that kind of thing. Chanting is often called ecstatic chanting which means it's high energy chanting. So it gets faster and faster and faster. And it's, it's in one way, it's like the, uh, the Sufi dervishes, because even as you are leaping up and down and chanting and all the drums are going on, all this, it, it brings you at the end to a very still space. And that's why I have done programs called chanting into meditation, because when you finish a chant, you are often, it's like an elevator. 
down to a very quiet space mm-hmm. and you just can sit right there and meditate. It's very wonderful. So I always say chanting is as well is a meditation technique in itself mm-hmm. because as you're chanting, you can notice what the mind is doing, but it's also a prelude to meditation because it will quiet you to that still space. Well, to, so for those of you out there who always say or have a tendency to say, I don't have enough time, focus on the time <laughs> first. <laughs> At least you'll get well, the you joy started. of chanting, of course, is you can chant anytime, anywhere. Do you see what I mean? You I can, you know, take that. a CD in the car of Krishnadas or Jai Utal or one of the Das brothers, you know, and just uh, chant up a storm in your car. So oh, it doesn't yes. take extra time in your day. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. And and I even do it while I'm cooking and things like that oh, and yes. cooking up That's around the house. Right. It's lovely. That's right. That's right. Absolutely. And the meditation, it's interesting because some people do shy away from meditation because they feel they have to do a long sit. Yes. No, start small. Start with five minutes, but make it rhythmic in your life. So I, I always say if you do it so that it, it's like brushing your teeth, you, you would miss it if you don't do it. So you just do five minutes every morning or four mornings a week or whatever it is. And then one day you'll be sitting there and say, well, I don't have any place to go. I think I'll sit for a longer time and then it can expand. Right. So not to worry, fit it in where, it, where it, you can yeah. and then let it expand naturally. And isn't that wonderful that you said that? Because I believe that as well. I always just tell people, even if it's set a timer, set a timer, That's like an right. egg timer for three minutes, just start. Just That's walk. Right. Just That's be right. aware of your walk or just when the timer goes off, you know you can stop. And yes, that's it's, right. naturally it just expands because what is five minutes? What is 10 minutes? You yeah. know, I just said to someone today, you know, it takes longer to boil a pot of water to make pasta than it does to do a five minute walk. yes and uh it is fascinating because also if you begin to do this kind of practice you will usually become a bit more focused in your life and you may find that that five minutes in the morning will set your day so that you get more done than you Mm -hmm. would if you didn't do that five minutes so uh, you know it's an interesting thing this business of time and how we use it in our lives I agree very much so. Um, Bhavani, where, uh, we're coming, we're, we're actually past our time right now, but of course it's so very interesting. Uh, where will you be teaching next, uh, or during this year? I mean, there's not very many more months during this year, so. Well, frankly, if somebody wants to leap into action, I'm doing a meditation and chanting experience in Plymouth, Massachusetts this weekend. So it's at Pinewood Lodge in Plymouth. And if someone went to pinewoodlodge.com, they could click in the lower right-hand corner, the brochure, and just call in and bingo, drive over and come be with us. It's a beautiful setting. It's Mm. a 200-acre pine forest Mm. with a lake. And it's very, very wonderful. So, And Kim Saunders is doing it with me. She's doing some dream work and some art artwork. It's going to be a very wonderful weekend. So that's happening. And then November 2 through 4, I do a weekend program at Kripalu in uh, Stockbridge in Massachusetts. And it's called Introduction to Meditation. And there, because I believe that it's helpful to learn a few techniques in the beginning, I do five or six different techniques. So people, when they go home, have choices as to what they might like to use for their primary practice. Mm. So that's a great weekend to come and be with me. Mm. The big thing, though, next uh, year in February, I have a five-day program at Kripalu on mantra. It's called Applying the Magic of Mantra to Your Life. And most programs, wherever they are, you go and you learn something and you have to go home and practice. This is actually a practice program. We'll build a practice group, that asanga that week. And every morning we have a powerful breathing technique and then we do mantras and it's a, you'll learn what it feels like to have a real practice. So check that out. It's at kripalu.org. You can check into applying the magic of mantra. So that would be a lovely way to start the lunar year. 
Yes, yes, that's the thing. We'll do a mantra to Ganesha to clear away the obstacles for the year and Lakshmi to bring in abundance and all these good things. Yep, oh, yep. Oh, magnificent, <laughs> magnificent. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Bhavani. It's, uh, you, every time we speak to you, uh, whether it be on the virtual conference, on a personal call, we just tend to learn so much from you. And uh, you, really, I know you said you're not an expert, but to us, you truly are. You have such a beautiful way of articulating and making it seem, not making it seem, making it accessible for us to, to really capture and understand. And we definitely uh, would love to get you back and um, really elaborate on the different areas uh, of your expertise. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's been a delight to be with you. I thank you so much for the invitation. And if anyone does have any questions, I do have a blog on my website, uh, com, or somebody can email me from there if they would wish, if they have any questions. So by all means, and I'd love to come back anytime. So that's thank great. Thank you. Thank you. And of course, thank you everyone for joining us today and supporting us on this new platform of education and information. You know, we're always grateful for your continuous support and, and really without you, this wouldn't continue, right? So we look forward to hearing from you and how we can support you better. Just a reminder, you can actually, um, uh, make comments and still ask questions to Bhavani. Uh, even after the show is up and it continues to be up for you to review and share with others here on yogahub.tv. Uh, a reminder for you to join us live every Tuesday at 10.30 a.m. Pacific Standard Time, 1.30 Eastern Time for our magical medical tour with my wonderful co-host, Dr. Glenn Bowman, as we speak to um, different practitioners in the health industry. And of course, on Wednesdays here at 11 a.m. Pacific Standard Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time for my Trinity of Life, which you are with us now. Thank you again and join us next week as we learn about environmental medicine with Dr. Nick Bitts here on yogahub.tv. Until then, namaste. Namaste.